Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com. Sketches from Scripture Presents Great News A teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the Law of Moses, and the Kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is Great News. This is my good friend, Michael Strickland. He's here with us this evening. We don't have uh, anything rigorous prepared at all. I just know that Michael has taught Matthew. I respect Michael's opinion a lot. Much of what you've heard me talk about in this Matthew series are things that I've, I've learned from Michael, either from his classes or from, um, you know, when I was running video, uh, I got to sit in on some of the college level classes that Michael taught with the courses that we taught at North Boulevard. Uh, Michael and I have just enjoyed numerous conversations uh, about scripture and about Jesus. And, uh, uh, and, and I've just learned a lot from, from that. And, and as I'm working on, on films and stories set in the time period, I'll call him with these just bizarre, obscure questions. And, and so he'll have to draw on his vast stack of knowledge to, um, to formulate an answer to a, a question maybe he's never been asked before about different things. And, um, and because many of these things don't have black and white answers, Michael's always really good at, at saying, especially if there, sometimes there's things I want to work into a story. And I would say, is this something that would happen? You know, he's real good about sort of giving me the, the spectrum of well, probably wouldn't happen, but it could, or definitely wouldn't happen. Or yeah, yeah, actually, that's what most people think did happen, you know. And so I always walk away with a sense of if what I'm doing is not only possible, but also is it plausible you know, given the context and given the culture and things like that. And so just always appreciated Michael's input. So I wanted you guys to benefit from it uh, tonight. So we're just going to talk about the gospel of Matthew a little bit. We just finished the series called Great News and 16 part series went all the way through gospel of Matthew, read most of it live with you and went through a lot of notes. I used Craig Evans, mm-hmm. one of his uh, uh, lesson series to kind of help me uh, go through it. And so what I thought we'd do is uh, I was just going to tell you, because I'm, I'm sure you haven't listened to the whole series, so I was just going to tell you kind of how we broke down Matthew and how we talked about it. And then you can maybe talk about some things that uh, that we didn't talk about or maybe some things that I, that I missed or, or maybe got wrong or something like that. So uh, the, one of the biggest things was just sort of looking at the structure and looking at the five major discourses in Matthew. So the first couple of chapters is... Jesus being born, Jesus as a, as a baby, as a child. The last 
a few chapters are the humiliation and exaltation of the Messiah, or what we would call the passion story of Jesus, the crucifixion, resurrection. But the meat of Matthew in the middle is these five major discourses, and I've given them these titles where the, the, the kingdom is announced, there's this uh, ideas about kingdom authority, and then this declaration of kingdom arrival, and then from there, what kingdom action is going to look like, and then the kingdom age, which is already here, but really is to come. And each of these has a major discourse, and it's preceded by some narrative. So the major discourse in Kingdom Announced is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is saying, hey, there's a kingdom, and this is the way that it ought to be operating. Um, these are the way these things should look. And then uh, the kingdom authority is sort of the assembling of the disciples, and he gives the disciples authority, and he sends them out on mission. And so we get the missionary discourse, where he um, just gives them instructions for going out and, and um, going to the different towns and things like that. And then kingdom arrival is Jesus basically saying, by the way, this kingdom we've been talking about, I am the king. I am the one that you've been looking for, the one you've been waiting on. And is uh, it's no longer, it's not it's not at hand in that it could be here any moment. It's at hand in that it's, it's here. It's in your hand. I'm right here. And uh, this is where the... Um, kingdom parables discourse is. And so that is the kingdom is like, not the kingdom is going to be like, but the kingdom is like, it's here, here I am. And here's how you can understand it and understand what is happening and <clears throat> understand why I am um, reaching out to some of the people that I'm reaching out to and why I'm angry with some of the people that I'm angry with. Um, the big theme that we've discussed in Matthew is religion versus discipleship that Jesus comes in and he's really stern and strict with the Pharisees and even Peter and, and, the, and some religious thinking, even though he's much more open to um, people that are currently outside of the, these, these promises, people who are, are, are crippled or unclean or um, you know, blind, lame, lepers, women, children, mm -hmm. uh, Gentiles, even a Syrophoenician woman and, and some others like that. Uh, we get into the kingdom action. And this is, sort of what is it going to look like when this kingdom is in progress? And um, so the kingdom actually, the narrative there is the community regulations discourse, as Craig Evans called it. Mm -hmm. And it's just sort of, <clears throat> here's the way the kingdom is, is going to operate as a discipleship kingdom. So it's not just Sermon on the Mount where it's like, hey, here's some rules for living that you could, that you could almost apply without even being without even being Christian, without even being religious, but it's like specifically the discipleship kingdom, Jesus kingdom is going to look like this. And um, also talking about um, some, some persecutions and things that are going to come. Kingdom age really gets into some of that persecution stuff. And um, that's the, the amount, all of it discourse. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is about persecution. It's all about judgment. It's all about, you know, the, the end of time, the, the kingdom age that's going to come after that day of judgment, after the Lord's day. And, uh, and then at that point, then we begin the passion narrative and I've made the case and I, I don't know that anybody else would make this case or if it's even a good case to make, but I've got them arranged on the screen how I do, because I, after doing all these old Testament series and looking at all these chiasms, all this chiastic structure, I saw this as kind of a chiastic structure, the kingdom authority. That second, uh, discourse is about sending out the kingdom and the kingdom action really is, is parallel to that in a way as all the disciples are going out, not just these 12 that I've given some specific authority to, but I'm going to give some kind of authority to, to all and they're all going to go out and they're all going to experience these things. Uh, in the same way, the Sermon on the Mount and, um, and Jesus showing up, repent, the kingdom is at hand. In the same way that kingdom announced that first discourse uh, announces some of those things, the kingdom age announces not just the near term, but, but 
after time, the, the, the big thing that's to come. And so I just see some parallels there. And I figure Matthew, he's Jewish. He's writing to other Jews. He's uh, clearly from the opening chapters of Matthew. He, he realizes I'm writing scripture. I want you to read this as scripture. I want you to read this as an extension of the stories of Torah and, and the prophets. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's fulfilling a lot of prophecy. And so it stands to reason that, that he certainly would draw on their technique even and, and put things in a chiastic structure. I assume mm-hmm. he would be really somewhat familiar with some of the rabbinic teaching and things at the time. There was already some, some very complex, you know, rabbinic teaching by this time. And it seems like he's drawing on some of that and some of the way he organizes the stories and, mm-hmm. and things like that. But uh, that's just kind of my, my conjecture really. Um, but the big thing that we, we stress, as I said, is that this is all about religion versus discipleship. Mm-hmm. And that for us today, what it means, as David Young would say, it's not about church membership. But it's about discipling and it's about relationship. It's about being a disciple and making disciples. Mm-hmm. And that um, the phrase that's probably repeated maybe more than any other in Matthew, I think it's four or five times. Um, if you're not growing fruit, if you're not bearing fruit, you're going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. Mm-hmm. John the Baptist says it. Jesus says it at least twice. He intimates the same kind of idea to the disciples there in the, the Mount Olivet discourse and it appears to be a very strong um, idea that look, just cause you think you check all the boxes or you participate in all the activities or are all part of the same club or in church every Sunday or whatever the rubric is, don't think that that's what it is. That's going to save you. But instead it's going to be, um, sharing this love and joy, sharing this truth with, with everybody. And you're going to bear fruit in your behavior, but you're also going to bear fruit by actually creating, creating more seed bearing fruit. Right. Uh, other people, other disciples that are going out. So that's a that's sort of real condensed what we talked about in 16 weeks looking at the text. There are lots of other themes in Matthew. Righteousness obviously is a big theme, mm-hmm. something that we could uh, spend a lot of time talking about. We we hit on it. We talked about it. We talked about holiness and compared it to the idea. We talked a lot about holiness in the Genesis series, actually, mm-hmm. even though the idea of holiness doesn't really come around until Exodus Leviticus. It's present right there in the first sentence of Genesis. Right. And so we've talked some about that, but we that's that's one thing that we didn't hit very hard necessarily. Uh, and there may be some other things or some specific stories that you want to point out or something like that. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Michael just for a few minutes and, and let him maybe share some things. And then I might interject with some questions and we're just going to kind of have a conversation here. I thought you would enjoy us watching us talk with each other. I think our conversations are pretty entertaining. So. Um, so Definitely. that's, that's how we saw Matthew. You, you tell us what, what you see when you, when you look at Matthew. Um, all right. Let me start by saying I'm not, a, I'm not a Matthean expert or anything. And it has been a while since I taught Matthew. Uh, so some of the things that are fresh on your mind won't be as fresh on mine. Sure. And like you said, I, I did tune in some, but I didn't, uh, I didn't yeah, certainly don't sorry. know everything you covered. Um, one of the things that, uh, I would want to start with is the beginning Seems like a good place to start. So um, when Matthew starts off, and I have the um, CSB here, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the the word there for genealogy is uh, Genesis, right? Um, And so one of the major questions that I think we should probably bring to uh, all the components of scripture is this. What did the authors see themselves doing? What was Matthew envisioning himself doing? And I think you can make a solid case that Matthew was attempting to write scripture. 
I don't think it's clear that a lot of the writings of the New Testament were written with that in mind. So um, if I had to bet, I would say that most of Paul's writings, he did not foresee the fact that 2,000 years later, we'd be reading them and using them as a basis for our faith. Now, he wouldn't be opposed to that. However, they're much more occasional um, and in a, in a certain sense, all of the scriptures are occasional, but you know what I mean. Um, the letters that Paul writes are directed at people. I, yeah, I know what you mean by occasional, yeah. but do explain that word. It's oh, a, sure. It's yeah. A handy word. Right. Yeah. So um, for uh, literature to be occasional, it means that there's a certain occasion that um, brings about the need for it. So Paul writes to the Corinthians because he knows they have these seven problems. They need to learn these five things. And so... Um, the epistles especially are occasional literature. And you even know that because oftentimes the recipients are named. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't expect to pass the letters around. In fact, I think that part of that's assumed. Right. He even says to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly right. But like in um, First Corinthians, when he says, as to this thing that you right. asked about, yeah. that's the occasion upon which I'm answering this sure, question. Yeah. And yeah, so it's Corinthians ask questions and now he's addressing them. Um, and so it's um, in that sense... The, the Gospels aren't written with that uh, specificity in mind. So there's a, um, a formational book written um, early 2000s, late 90s, and I can't remember, by Richard Balkum called The Gospels for All Christians. And he argues that um, the genre of gospel itself is uh, um, aimed at all believers and not, um, especially among uh, biblical scholars, it's kind of, in vogue to talk about Mark writing for the Roman church, you know, that kind of thing. And what he argues is now they're actually writing for a bigger audience because they want these to be circulated and they want them to uh, fill in the gaps for people who already believe in Jesus, most likely um, to know more about uh, their Lord. Now, having said that, I think Matthew uh, and John up the ante a little bit. So, um, if you go by, you know, uh, most biblical scholarship will say that Mark wrote first and then Matthew um, came next and, and used Mark as he wrote. Um, and then maybe Luke contemporaneously with Matthew or maybe later, I would argue later, but either way, um, Luke also makes use of Matthew, uh, Mark. The, the big debate is whether or not Luke made use of Matthew, could have known Matthew, that kind of thing. But one of the things I, one of the things that you can take away from that is Mark was already being accepted in the early church. Um, so whether or not Mark was writing for this big audience, envisioning himself as writing for future generations of Christians, uh, uh, I, it wouldn't surprise me, but it's not as clear as it is especially with Matthew and John, because Matthew starts off and he calls his book a Genesis. Um, And that's not by accident. Okay, so by by the first century, the uh, Jews primarily knew their scriptures through the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And of course, the word for, um, uh, well, the word, the Hebrew word that uh, is used to describe the book of Genesis is Bereshit. It's uh, the beginning. Well, the Genesis is the beginning. And so what he's doing is using what you might say is a code word to say, hey, think of this like a Genesis. When we hear the word Genesis, we either think of the Phil Collins band. Right. Or maybe more importantly, we think of maybe. we yeah. think of the Bible, right? right? 
And so he's invoking a scriptural connotation. It's very similar to John yeah. 1. Exactly. Yeah. So John does it in a different way by mimicking the right. Septuagint yeah. by saying instead of in the beginning, God created, he says, in the beginning was the word. Right. So you see, they both invoke scripture in a way that um, seems to indicate that they envision themselves filling out the sacred literature of the early Christians. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's clear to us now, but in the first century, when you have these followers of Jesus and they're figuring out how to go out and be Jesus people, it's not clear that they would expect that they would have their own set of scriptures. First of all, they already had scriptures, right? right? And, and so they wouldn't have necessarily felt a need for more. And second of all, if you assume that most of them figured sometime in their lifetime, Jesus was going to return, there probably wouldn't be a great need for some kind, you know, um, especially a bound volume of Christian teaching. Instead, that, you know, they just wanted to uh, make disciples now yeah. because the kingdom of heaven's near, right? Yes. Um, but by the time you start to work into the second generation, you have to start thinking more long term. And one of those is you need to start collecting the writings that you have that you know are uh, inspired by God. And so, you know, they, there, there isn't a rigorous process for that. But at the same time, uh, it's clear that if they believe Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, wrote a book about the life of Jesus, they're going to want to have that. Sure. So he's writing and, jo and, John, and John Mark, I think we mentioned this in the very last lesson of the Great News series, but mm -hmm. John Mark, who we think wrote Mark, right. is probably getting his information from from Peter. Is, is yeah, that's what that's what tradition says. Yeah. Um, so again, yeah. again, you've got a gospel that's basically firsthand information from from Peter, from you know one, one of Jesus's top guys. Yeah. John, same thing. Luke is with Paul. Paul has special revelation from Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. These aren't just random dudes writing about Jesus. That's exactly right. And so you know, one of the things that the early church would have wanted to to know whether or not they should take this as a, just a, what we might call um, an important writing versus sacred scripture would be, hey, is this tied to an apostle in some way? So the word apostolicity is used there. And um, it makes sense then that Matthew, uh, you know, since he is an apostle, that's a slam dunk. Right. If John is an apostle, it's a slam dunk. It also shows that this... Um, uh, there's enough variety there in the Gospels so that you have two non-apostles writing so that it wasn't as if someone ahead of time sat down and said, OK, if we want people to believe this, we better have some big names right here. Yeah. You see a, a change. And by the second century, you start to see um, we'll call spurious Gospels or non-canonical Gospels that are written. It's clear that there's kind of a cottage industry trying to pass off stories of Jesus to people. Right. In fact, you, it, Luke even hints that that's happening in his day hmm. when he starts off. Uh, he says, many have undertaken to give an account of the things that have happened among us. Um, and he might even be talking about written accounts, but he's certainly talking about there. So, so there are lots of stories out there. Right. And Luke says, I want to now, since you've heard lots of things, let me set down in order what um, the truth is. Um, so by the second century, you start to have things like the Gospel of Thomas. And in these early Christian communities, they don't know whether or not, hey, it's got an apostle's name attached to it. Then later, you got the Gospel of Peter. Um, you know. So here, here uh, this is my point. You would not pick uh, Luke and Mark to right. be in that great, you know, they wouldn't be on your Mount Rushmore of uh, people in the uh, sure. Christian history. But so it, the fact that they're fairly unknown is also an indication that there's not some kind of um, hidden design by people who are trying to pass off this teaching. Sure. In fact, 
Mark being the earliest is the greatest indication right. of that, right? Well, and, and Luke is, wrote more of the New Testament than anybody. Yeah, he's more got about half the New Testament. Right? That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, and, but it, at the same time, the early church probably accepted Luke at face value because of Luke's association with with yeah, Paul. Yeah. So I, I made a conjecture in the last lesson, that, which I explained. This is just totally my harebrained thinking. And and I think I may have discussed it with you briefly. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I, I have this this idea that, um, you know, Mark ends with the women at the tomb and the tomb is empty and they go away amazed. Right. And the earliest manuscripts, a lot of them end there. Right. But then there's also there are early manuscripts, but maybe those are the earliest ones. So other early manuscripts will end with the mark that we have now. Yeah. It's got Verses the, nine through 16, the ending yeah. on it. And I made the case as somebody who's done who's done um, fundraising videos. I never put the ask in the video. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do the video so that it lays out the story, and everything, and you don't have to have somebody stumbling over it or forgetting parts or having to go back or whatever. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, just... Mm-hmm. Play this, and then that tells the whole story. Then somebody makes the emotional appeal in person. The the Ted Beatty or the Ted Gobble gets up and says, "Okay, now that you've heard the story, I want to make the emotional appeal to you mm-hmm. to fund, give to this fundraiser, give to this organization, whatever." And so I kind of made the argument that as people, as disciples, are going around and doing this, somebody, maybe it was John Mark himself, maybe Peter said, "Hey, write some of this stuff down or whatever." Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Holy Spirit inspiring these things, but said, "Let's let's let's put this down so that as we send people out." They'll have hmm. a copy of it. And they don't have to remember all this stuff. They'll, they'll get the story right. We don't have to worry about the story deviating. You know, they can sort of remember this. And then when they get to this amazed part, and it's this kind of cliffhanger, now then they can bring their personal testimony to it, their personal relationship with with the church or with, with you know, uh, again, you're talking first and second generation Christians sure. at the time mm-hmm. that Mark is being proliferated. And then when Matthew sits down to write, he, he takes Mark because Mark's done this first work, this excellent foundational work. Uh, but he's maybe got his fellow Jews in mind who are hearing Mark's story, which is full of power and it's very short, but it doesn't have a whole lot to say. It has, does have sure. Jewish things in it, but mm-hmm. it didn't have a whole lot to say about the prophecies and all that kind of thing. So Matthew adds in, well, oh, and that was to fulfill this prophecy. And that was, look at the lineage here and adds mm-hmm. a lot of the Jewish things in to, again, kind of appeal to that audience. And and then you see maybe Luke coming behind him. And I know, I think you're right. in the camp where Luke writes after Matthew using Matthew as a source exactly, rather than yeah. some mm-hmm. third Q document or whatever. That's called the fair hypothesis. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. so Luke then says, yeah, okay, well, I'm going to take all these things. I know I can trust Mark. I know I can trust Matthew. I've got a couple other quotes from here from some other mm-hmm. people. i got some things that Paul told me that Jesus told him, whatever. And I'm going to mm-hmm. write this down and also write down a history of the early church. Uh, and then John comes along at the end of it all and says, I'm the only one left. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You know about Jesus because you got Matthew, Mark and Luke. But I knew Jesus and there's some things, some some more stuff I'd like to tell you. So I'm going to cover Matthew, Mark and Luke events kind of in the first couple of chapters. So, you know, yeah, this is that same story. Mm-hmm. But now here are all the or I'm going to tell the same story like feeding of the 5000. But I'm going to give it a spin that maybe you didn't know some more information or I'm going to tie it in to, to some other ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, one thing that I love about the storytelling of Scripture is. The farther you back out, there's still a story being told, you know. Mm-hmm. So you can look at a at a at a you know story in the Old Testament or whatever, just a couple of paragraphs, but then you back out and you see where that fits in in the context of the stories around it, a little chiastic structure or something going on. Then you back out to the book and you see there's a whole story that's being told here, or a whole argument that's being made. Back out to the Bible itself and you see the story of God, you know, being told. Then you back outside of the Bible where you've got Bible and readers and Bible and, and history itself and how all those, you know, kind mm-hmm. of tie in and you're looking at method and you're looking at, 
you know, the way these things go together. And so uh, that was kind of my conjecture for maybe why Mark possibly ended where it did, but then they decided to stick the ending on it later. So it would be kind of a complete gospel or something. Mm-hmm. And Matthew expounds on it. I don't know. It's pure conjecture, but it sure. Yeah, like yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So what else you got with Matthew um, uh, about Matthew that maybe you might want to discuss with us? Um, well, you know, Matthew frequently quotes from scripture. Right. And one of the clear things he's trying to do is show how the um, scriptures of Israel foretold the coming of Christ and the events of Christ's life. And the way he does that is in a nonlinear way. In fact, it's fair to say that what Matthew does is very creative with the Old Testament text. Okay. So, um, you know, as I'm looking at my Bible right here, it's clear he's quoting in chapter one, Verse 22, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. He often uses that formula, something like that. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken. Um, And so he's explicitly saying this fulfills some portion of prophecy of the Old Testament. There are a few things that stand out. If you look at this with um, much detail, you start to say, uh, first of all, um, oftentimes I didn't know this was a prophecy. If you look back in the Old Testament, certain things that Matthew would consider prophecy don't appear to be prophecy. In fact, they might be incidental details sometimes. Uh, Secondly, and the more controversial, is that oftentimes it seems that Matthew changes the meaning of an Old Testament text to fit the story of Jesus. Um, So one of the first ones to talk about here, though, is the one I just read. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. So, of course, uh, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And, um, you know, the famous text there, um, uh, the Hebrew word that's translated um, uh, virgin is uh, Alma, which could also be translated uh, just maiden. Now, you could argue in an ancient Jewish context, if there's a young lady who is unmarried, she's going to be a virgin almost always anyway. So. Um, it's not controversial to translate Alma as virgin or as maiden. But more than that, um, there have been those who've been tempted to say, this is Matthew inserting an idea into um, you know, the Old Testament because there, the text doesn't actually mean virgin. You know, it doesn't have to be that specific. And, but Matthew, the word he uses, of course, he's writing in Greek. He uses the form of the word parthenos, which means virgin. More specifically, is that is that does the the Septuagint version yeah, of the so, Old Testament? Yeah, so the Septuagint is the one uh, fir- first translates Alma as Parthenos from Isaiah. From Isaiah, so, exactly. So and this just, is three hundred years before Matthew. So just to be clear, yeah. three hundred years before Matthew, when the Old Testament is what we call the Old Testament is translated into Greek for the readers of the time, right? It translates it Parthenos, which means virgin. Exactly. These are this Jewish um, scholars translate to, into the Greek the, the word Alma as Parthenos. So that's where you get virgin from. So Matthew is only following um, what is uh, a scriptural practice that's already taken place. Um, now, this is important uh, for several reasons. One, the one that's most interesting to me is in the second century, you've got an early Christian writer named Justin Martyr. Um, that wasn't actually his name. Martyr wasn't his name. He earned that name. Um, and one of the things that he does uh, is he's a prolific writer, and we do have some of his writings, um, a couple of his apologies, and we also have um, 
a treatise that's called Dialogue with Trifo. And so it envisions him having this dialogue with a, a Jewish person who is skeptical of the Christian faith. Hmm. Now, it, it's written as if Trifo is a real person and they're really having this debate. We don't know if there actually was a Trifo or if he's just, you know, set this up as kind of the standard Jewish argument against um, Jesus as the Messiah. Maybe not unlike Theophilus, Luke writes to a Theophilus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Theophilus could be a specific person or it could be a group of people or an yeah. idea. Or a, yeah. Sure. So one of the things, uh, Justin's, um, uh, what's the person that you who's on the opposite side? His, not combatant, the but anyway. Counterpart. Uh, yeah. yeah, okay, so we'll say counterpart. counterpart. Whatever, yeah, yeah. Uh, Trifo says is... Um, you know, when Matthew, that, that word doesn't mean virgin. He says that, I mean, this is a second century argument. Hmm. Uh, it's still used today, but it's a second right. century argument. That word doesn't mean virgin. That's Matthew inserting that meaning. And, and Justin Martyr says, no, 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 no. It was the Jews who first did this. So, you know, even they thought this was a good translation. Of course, Justin would argue, but that's because God caused them to do it. Um, there certainly was a belief uh, among the Jews um, and Christians, and I don't want to make a hard distinction between Jews and Christians because, you know, that plays into the very anti-kingdom notion that um, we want to avoid. But uh, just for simplicity's sake, we'll say uh, the Jews felt the Septuagint was divinely inspired by God. And that tradition was taken on into the translation uh, itself. The translation itself. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it's certainly the case that most of the early Christians would not have seen a great need to have the uh, Old Testament in Hebrew because the Septuagint was inspired. Um, and uh, even today, the Orthodox Church, if you get an Orthodox Bible, the Old Testament is the Septuagint. It's a tr- so the English translation of the Old te- of, the, of the Septuagint, not of the original Hebrew. Oh, interesting. Okay. Now, it wasn't as if Christians were opposed to that. They did that. Right. You know, so Jerome did his own translation from the Hebrew and that kind of thing. But the point being that um, the Septuagint was was the Bible, and um, Matthew's very comfortable using the Septuagint. Occasionally, he will vary, and we don't know exactly why. It could be that his text of the Septuagint was slightly different because, I mean, these are all handwritten uh, items, and they do vary, um, usually in minor ways. So, but um, here, it's he's just following the lead of the Septuagint, and then showing that, look, there was a prophecy about a a virgin having a child. Now, you you go and read the text in Isaiah, you don't necessarily think, oh, the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin one day in and of itself. And so that gets to an important point about, uh, I think, what it means to read the Bible in a Christian way. Okay. So um, I teach a class called Biblical Theology. And the assumption that most of us Christians bring to the Bible is this, that it all coheres and that it all... um, Uh, makes sense together. But let me say this, that's not clear. In fact, there are lots of, uh, uh, I mean, it's a compilation of books and they say wildly varied things. And sometimes those things are hard to reconcile. Now, I believe they can be reconciled, so don't get me wrong, but it can, we can kind of gloss over the fact that these are very diverse forms of literature written over thousands of years, very different audiences, very different time periods, um, you know, so that uh, we can easily just kind of wedge them together. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, and so it's kind of important to let the text just say what it says. So if I were teaching a class on Isaiah, I wouldn't immediately jump to the fact that Jesus fulfills this prophecy. In fact, I'd say, what does this text mean to the people of that day? However, having said that, to read Christianly is to read all the Bible through Jesus. Yeah. And so what you'll see, the early church did this, and I think we should do this, and that is certainly look for 
hints of Jesus, look for um, ways that Jesus is foretold, Christian promises, things like that, that are embedded in the Old Testament. But as a, uh, a Bible teacher, I'd also prefer that let's not lose the original text either. Sure. So, I mean, I, I think Paul, you know, he talks about lots of times Paul will talk about a, a secret or a mystery, you know, this okay, mystery, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And most of the time when he's talking about that, he appears to be talking about specifically that Gentiles are going to be included in these promises. Yeah. Right. And you can, when you, when that secret has been revealed, when you realize God does in fact want Gentiles to be grafted into this, this tree, then you can go back to, you know, God and Abraham talking in Genesis and see where he says, I'm going to bless the nations through you and other passages like that. And, and suddenly it's like this other layer is kind of peeled off there where you go, oh, okay, I can see th- that that the Old Testament was really talking about this the whole time. And when you even go through the laws and it says how to treat people that are coming into your group and how to treat people that are living among you and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I see things here that really point towards Gentiles being in you know the kingdom, being considered part of that, and e- even in going through the Gospels, Jesus deals almost entirely with Jewish people, but he says things that just give this big hint that there's. He says to the Pharisees in particular, uh, I've said this to you before too. The sign of Jonah is more than just the three days and nights in yeah. the tomb, but is mm-hmm. but is a way of saying you're going to be real upset when you guys are on the outs and Nineveh is in sackcloth and ashes mm-hmm. and having repented. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think the sign of Jonah, I think is, I think is, is a, a reference to the Gentiles are coming. I mm-hmm. think is, is what he's right. still telling the Pharisees. Cause he knows that you're not going to accept that, but I'm telling you, mm-hmm. I'm telling you now in coded language, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. so, so I, I see going back into these older stories or even going back into the gospels and, and, mm-hmm. and, and reading, knowing everything and, and seeing these different layers there without losing. That's why I love, I've been for the Old Testament text, of course, I've been using the Robert Alter Robert books Alter, yeah. mm-hmm. because he's so great at, um, that's that's one of Robert Alter, those of you who've been here for the Old Testament series, Robert Alter, one of the things that he says is, and when we do these English translations, typically it'll be one committee that does the whole translation and they'll kind of translate everything the same. Mm-hmm. So the Genesis kind of sounds like the prophets and kind of sounds like Acts or whatever. Right. It's wildly different people, wildly different mm-hmm. cultures, wildly different technologies around them. And you know, you're going from Iron Age to, to something else, you know, the first, the Roman Empire, it's like completely different night and day. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. And, and if we can't navigate the differences in those cultures, then it's very hard for us in the 21st century America to know. Was this a cultural thing or is this for us? Sure. Absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. so that's, it's good to look at it that way. Yeah. All right. Uh, we got probably uh, 10 more minutes plus. Okay. So uh, what, what else you got? Um, what, what, what else thoughts do you have? I have? So let's see. Um, you know, the five great teaching blocks of Matthew. I'm sure you pointed that out, right? I mean, that, the five um, discourses. Yeah. The five discourses. And um, so the first one, kind of the great one, if you had to pick one, would be the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. And... Um, one of the things, uh, so, you know, appreciating Jesus kingdom message is something that I kind of have spiraled into. So, you know, first it, the Christian world has awakened to this kingdom language over the past 20 years, thankfully. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's less and less about getting to heaven when you die, although that's not, that's not, there's nothing wrong with wanting, desiring that, but, but envisioning, um, how the kingdom uh, of God and what that might look like. And this is actually good for those of us from the Church of Christ background, because um, we certainly have always emphasized the church and the kingdom, but maybe still didn't quite grasp the um, 
how big this, this kingdom idea really is. And so, you know, she may actually probably take, make us have a much grander vision of what the church is supposed to be. But um, one of the things that stands out to me then, if you start to appreciate this kingdom language and Jesus is king and, and um, the, those ideas, when you look in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about what this is what the good life is like. So, you know, having preached from uh, the Beatitudes, I've, I've um, said things, of course, most of the things that I've said before I would revise in some way. Uh, but one of the things lately that's hit me is, um, like any good preacher, when I've preached on it, uh, I would say, you know, you could translate, um, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You could translate that word as happy. And then I want to quickly illustrate. Now, what I mean by that is not God wants you to be happy. Um, and so, I, I, but I feel like we're kind of step on our own message if we try to emphasize the fact that, you know, it was not really that kind of happiness um, because, uh, maybe we should sit with that for a minute and just appreciate the fact that to be human means you want to be happy. And so what Jesus is saying, hey, you want to be happy? If, you, how. if you take a microphone down to MTSU yeah. and you ask people, you know, what's the meaning of life? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you'll have you'll have some Jesus people, but most people will say, uh, just be happy, make other yeah, people man. happy. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually admirable. That's good. Now, it, again, there's a, there's a lot of the... Um, scold in me or the it would Puritan make, in me that wants to say, now look, what God doesn't mean there is, oh, just do whatever makes you happy. It would, it would make stuff. me happy if you if you gave me a hundred dollars right now. Yeah, see, exactly. And because I'm a, I'm a scold, um, you know, that's, that's the Satan in you talking and I don't want to feed that. But, you know, uh, seriously, it, it hits a fundamental uh, human desire that you don't have to be religious for. You don't have to have a lot of background, right? You want to be happy? Jesus says, hey, you want to be happy? I'll show you how to be happy. Now, so much of what he says is counterintuitive for that, but it's counterintuitive for us religious people too, right? okay? So it's just as hard for us to live out the Sermon on the Mount as it is to ask anybody because we're generally not willing to do it. Um, The thing that I've missed that I'm starting to appreciate more is how much uh, relationship factors into the good life. How to be happy, right? So if I had to, you know, this is not a fair... um, Wait, analogy, but let me use it anyway. Um, I, I kind of envision what you know the American dream is about personal freedom, and it's about me being able to do what I want to do with my stuff. And so, if I had the good life, it would be I would have this you know huge estate, and I could go out and do what I wanted to with it, and I might have my wife there with me, and maybe my family right there. But it, it's not a vision of a crowd. Right. It's so it's, it's much more me focused, mm-hmm. and how I can have what I want. And um, what, or, maybe, or maybe it's the limit of your family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the the good life is a party with lots of people there. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the relational aspects of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, talks about, well, first of all, the kind of people who you would not normally want to be, like, for instance, those who are poor, right? Mm-hmm. They, they can have the good life, though. Mm-hmm. And those who are um, hungry and thirsty, they can have the good life. Um, so the... Uh, you know, that's the first element is that having abundant things don't necessarily doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to have the good life. But more than that, um, Jesus talks about now, imagine this, this in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about divorce. You know, in fact, Matthew kind of he harps on this a little bit. Um, it was a first century issue. It's a 21st century issue that, um, you know, the good life in the kingdom means that you are going to maintain relationships but they're going to be 
good relationships. So, you know, if I were going to do uh, look at America and our abundance and our technology is that one of the things that's so uh, obvious, a couple of things, first of all, we're more isolated than we've ever been. Yeah. Right. Um, and so uh, in a political season, it means that we might find more camaraderie with someone who you've never met before out in cyberspace somewhere, but don't know your next door neighbor. Um, and then um, secondly, the fact that um, most of our families are, you know, what we call dysfunctional in some way. In fact, uh, I remember hearing a British comedian one time, he said, I kept hearing you Americans talk about dysfunctional families, you know, dysfunctional family. And, and so finally I asked my American friend, what's a dysfunctional family? And he told me, and I was like, oh, in, in Britain, we just call that a family. Um, but, you know, one mark of the modern world is that our families are much more disjointed. There's more... Um, um, there's more pain, there's, there's more animosity and that kind of stuff. And so most people have broken family relationships and that kind of thing. And so the good life is this, those, um, the, the, uh, acrimonious or the, 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 the relationships that you wish you could do over and get it right again and that kind of stuff, that that's what you get. You get those kind of relationships, mm -hmm. but more than that, your enemies have to be there too. Mm -hmm. Right. So you pray for your enemies. Yeah. Um, love them. right. And so this is a big kingdom. And this party is going to have the very people that you don't want there. And so in a political season where, um, you know, well, let me put it this way. If our notion of a kingdom is a nation and ask that our nationality is going to unite us, I think we see that that's not going to happen. Right. No. Um, and so it's kind of uh, it's either I win you that I win, you lose kind of thing. And so in whatever I envision the perfect America to be that the other side is going to try to take away from me. One thing I can't do is envision that they're part of my ideal America. Mm -hmm. Then I might actually have to love them yeah. and pray for them. And so um, this beautiful kingdom involves my enemies as well. So I'm thinking about having the people that, I, that right now I'm in good relationships with. And Jesus is saying, you got to make all the relationships good for it to work because it's not really, it's not, not really the good life without that. Yeah. So you have a real party. You're going to have people there who you were once at odds with. Um, and in a Jewish context, that means there are going to be Gentiles there. And, and most of the Jews didn't like that idea. They didn't want, they didn't want to share their kingdom with um, the Gentiles. Uh, again, it yeah. goes back to why I think Matthew may have been expounding on Mark because you have all these Jews mm -hmm. early on in the first or second generation with the Christians going, well, you say you're Jewish. You say this is the Messiah. We get all these Gentiles yeah, worshiping exactly. with you. Explain mm -hmm. that. Explain mm -hmm. that to us. We don't understand. Mm -hmm. And so Matthew says, okay, I'll explain that to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So if the first major issue that Christianity faces is how do Jews and Gentiles get along, Matthew does make a lot of sense. Yeah. For that, in fact, all the gospels do. But Matthew, yeah. I'd say, because he's he's probably writing around the same time as as Paul's later letters. Uh, yeah, maybe. yeah, absolutely. So, so Romans, where Paul's dealing with this very issue in the Roman Church. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and so you know, I would date um, Matthew and Luke before seventy A.D. That's not to most Bible scholars who aren't so worried about whether or not it was really Matthew who wrote or really Luke who wrote would argue maybe in the seventies or later. Um, and much later dating for Luke is usually argued, but, um, you know, I'm still, I'm the more conservative into those things. And uh, one of the things, uh, so that means that Jesus prophecies about the fall of Jerusalem are real prophecies and not, right. not done after the fact. But, um, yeah, so that, that would mean that they're writing, um, either 
near the end of Paul's life or maybe just a little after, mm-hmm. right? But still, you've got to get somewhere in the 60s. Because he goes through, what, 67? Was he beheaded 67? Or is it before that? Paul? Yeah. Um, let's see. Okay, yeah. So, uh, 64, uh, Luke finishes Acts. So, yeah, 66 or 67, okay. I think, is the traditional dating for that. Okay. Um, yeah, that sounds right. And so, it's clear, Book of Acts is kind of left with Paul in limbo, right? He's still alive. Yeah, he's still alive. He's in house arrest, and we don't know the end of that story. You got to believe if Luke knew it, he would include it. You right. Think, you would think. In fact, it would be the triumphant, um, you know, martyrdom story that kind of Luke loves anyway, right? So, why, why wouldn't he include that? Yeah, yeah. sure, sure. Um, okay, so we let's take maybe just three or four minutes. I wish we had, I, there was, there's such a delay between what we're doing and online or else I'd see if people watching had any questions of any kind. But um, so one, one thing that we haven't talked a, a ton about, but I think is relevant to maybe what we were just talking about is this idea of righteousness. Mm-hmm. So um, how does the theme of righteousness tie in with this idea of the good life, maintaining relationships, the kingdom? Um, what, 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 t- tell, us, tell us what Matthew has to say about, about righteousness in general. Okay, uh, the way I would um, say it is that, um, you know, uh, generally in a, in a religious world, the idea of righteousness has more to do with morality and, you know, being a, a good Christian, you know, um, and it certainly entails, the idea of righteousness entails a, as a moral element. It also has a social element to it. So the word um, in Hebrew and in Greek that could be trans- that's translated righteousness can also be translated justice. And we typically use those words very differently today, but they really have a lot of the same elements. And so um, if those of us in the church focus on righteousness, we get about half of what Jesus is getting at or what Matthew's getting at with um, his focus on um, with the uh, uh, with righteousness to be. Uh, it is to be right with God, but it's also to be to be a just person. You know, so if you're a righteous person, it means that you um, demonstrate justice and you seek justice. And, um, and so that's where the you know the this kingdom idea comes in. It's not just about me me um, living my faithful life so that I can go to heaven, but it's that I have to be in a relationship with other people, yeah. and that means I have to care about how those people are treated. Right. Um, and I have to care about if they're lost. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, because Jesus is saying awful things mm-hmm. about what happens to people who yeah. who are on the outside there. Mm-hmm. So I have to take that very seriously. You know, uh, throughout human history, the general rule is this. There's a lot of injustice. And so America, well, I don't give them a pa- give us a pass here. OK, we, we have plenty of injustice, still yeah. have plenty of injustice. Yes. So um, but I think most of us admit, OK, compare us to most ancient civilizations and okay, some things are better. Some things are better, no doubt about it. And one thing you can be sure of is this: uh, oppression and um, slavery and um, all kinds of evil were just readily apparent in the ancient world throughout the biblical times. And so you just see pictures of it that, that horrify us today. That would have been commonplace right. in the ancient world. And so one of the things you could clearly see is, especially if you're on the bottom rung of society, you crave justice. You crave one day when you can actually have it good like your oppressor does, right? Um, And that's part of the promise of the kingdom. In fact, you know, the way Jesus will say it, uh, or the the scriptures repeat this, Jesus doesn't say it, 
Um, but the Old Testament and New Testament says it, which is that those who exalt themselves will be um, humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. First, last, right. last, first. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, in that regard. And then, he, and then he lives it out. He says it and then he goes and does it in the passion. He exactly. Said, he says, yeah. I'm telling you I'm first and now I'm mm-hmm. going to bear the ultimate shame, the ultimate uncleanliness during Passover week when everybody's super concerned about mm-hmm. righteousness and, cl- and cleanliness and ritual cleanliness. I'm going to be. I'm going to go through the filthiest, dirtiest, everything. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you see the perfect combination of what we would think of as righteousness and justice in Jesus, right? Yeah. Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we, we might become the righteousness of God. Mm-hmm. And so look at Jesus and you see, you know, I mean, he had no sin. And that's a basic Christian doctrine, the sinless Jesus. So, yeah, we want to be righteous like that. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, mm-hmm. he says. But also... We want to show justice like Jesus. And so he wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty and get in there with dirty people and deal with their sin, uh, you know, and, and their messy lives. Right. And so the um, the beauty the beauty of reading scripture, any scripture, but Matthew being a great example, is that if you're religious, you better be uncomfortable, right? Because it's the, the religious people who get most right. of Jesus' ire in uh, Matthew. Um, read Matthew 23. And you have the most devout people who are being absolutely excoriated, excoriated there. Yeah, for sure. Um, and since I am a religious person, they know Jesus is talking to me there. Yeah, we like to read it like, uh, well, we're the disciples. We're not the Pharisees. It's yeah. Like, you know, the, we have a lot more in common with the Pharisees than we're willing to admit. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Because we don't want to be on the receiving end of that. But we need to, we should listen to that because mm-hmm. it's uh, it's not a, that's the thing is it's not a, when Jesus gives that talk there in in Matthew twenty three, I think you said, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's not that's not condemning for all time. He's saying, "I'm telling you, this is the way you're being. Mm-hmm. This is the way you are, so that you can change." Yeah, absolutely. Because right. again, in the Gospel of John, we see Nicodemus, a Pharisee, mm-hmm. who comes and says, "Hey, I think we know you're from God," and, and Jesus sure. kind of challenges him. Yeah, really? Absolutely. Do you really think that? Right. And then we see Nicodemus again at the end of chapter seven. Kind of saying, well, maybe we should think about it to the other mm-hmm. Pharisees and get yeah. shot it down. And then we see him in 19, making himself unclean right. by touching mm-hmm. a cadaver, throwing his entire life away, mm-hmm. um, you know, to worship Jesus. It's Absolutely. A, it's a beautiful picture to see that progression, mm-hmm. see somebody who takes it to heart. Absolutely. Yeah. So on that note, mm-hmm. the last couple of minutes that we have here left before we need to sign off. Um, let's assume the people who are watching have listened to the Matthew series mm-hmm. um, or, or have read the gospels before a lot of the people watching have read the gospels before, but I know Mm -hmm. I do have some friends who are watching that aren't familiar with the Bible. Okay. And so my lesson on Genesis may be the first time they've really heard the story of Genesis. They might know the BBS version of the stories or whatever, but it's the first time they really heard some teaching on Genesis. Uh, Maybe this great news series is the first time they've actually had some teaching on Matthew. Maybe it's the first time they've really heard the the gospel story that, that Jesus Mm -hmm. came and was, was sinless and, was crucified and, and was resurrected and mm-hmm. all authority has been given to him. And he's given us authority and told us to go and make disciples and baptize uh, people, teach them to observe everything that he's taught, mm-hmm. that he's going to be with us. So now they know the story of Matthew. They've heard the gospel for the first time. Mm-hmm. In the last couple of minutes here, what would you, what would you tell that, that group of people to, uh, what kind of action would you give them? How would you, how would you send them out? What would you encourage them to go and do now that they're familiar with the story of Matthew? Um, yeah, great question. And so we didn't script this at all. I didn't know he was going to ask this. 
Um, so I'm going to regret what I say here. I'm sure of that if I, if I have more time to think about it. Yeah. But the thing that strikes, stands out to me is that so if Mark doesn't have a clear ending of what to do next, of what exactly happened and what what um, to what to do next, Matthew does. Mm -hmm. And so, first of all, resurrection. Right. That's God's seal upon Jesus, but it's also God's seal upon the mission of Jesus. So why, why do we take this guy seriously when he says to live this very um, uh, 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 counterintuitive way and countercultural uh, counter counter way, a way um, and in a way that involves death instead of life and that kind of thing? Why would we do that? Well, it's because he has the answer to the one big question that we all really want to know, which is what's on the other side, what happens after we die. And that, and then since he solved that one big one that, um, you know, we, we can't see beyond it. Then if, if he's figured that out, then we need to listen to everything else he says there. And that means it's true. So it's, it's God's stamp. And so, you know, the way, um, Paul says it is that he was declared to be the son of God with power through the resurrection. Um, so Matthew is telling us this story of a resurrected Jesus. It's not a surprise that he dies. Three times he predicts his death, but that's not the end of the story. If it were the end of the story, he'd just be like all the other great martyrs, right? All so many. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, there's so many good people who who died for a good cause, but he's more than that. And that means that his kingdom message is more than that. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the things I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you, even to the end of the age. That's Jesus. That's what we do with it, right? Yeah. I mean, it's all about discipleship and making disciples. So yeah. to go and do that. I think that's, that's what Matthew wants us to do. That's why he leaves his story off there. Now, Luke ends his story differently, and he wants to tell us a different thing. I mean, he's not opposed to discipleship, but Matthew specifically is aimed at making disciples. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think based on some of the things that, that Michael said, I, I think those of us who grew up in Churches of Christ at least understand the evangelism com component, no matter whether we do it or not, right. is another thing. Mm -hmm. But we understand evangelism and, and telling people about the Jesus story and maybe sitting down and having a Bible study or something like that. But one thing maybe we miss is getting getting dirty is living our life with them and discipleship is so much about time it's so much about time and relationship and, and spending time mm -hmm. with other people and uh I, I mean i can't tell you um the stories that i've heard on this couch over here people who have, have come and have opened up and have mm -hmm. shared what's going on in their life and uh I, i've just been really in the discipleship relationships that i've had through the whole human spectrum from 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 birth to death uh, in, in really multiple, multiple ways, multiple times. And, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult, but it is blessed. Mm, it's, absolutely. it's so yeah. rewarding and it makes me so happy. I, I remember, I can't talk about the details of it, but I remember the most difficult time in my ministry, really the most, the most difficult experience of my entire life. It was a, in a discipleship relationship. It was something that was happening to somebody else. Mm. And I was so distraught. I have not cried as an adult like that. I don't think mm. ever. Wow. I mean, loud wow. wailing crying. And yet there was some, not just a peace, but there was some joy there mm. that I'd never experienced before in my life. And it was simultaneous. Yeah. It was, it was right there, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, if I was just that person's friend, if I was just, 
flinging a tract at them, if mm-hmm. I was just scolding them for behavior, mm-hmm. I would never have. I would. I would. I wouldn't have the the deep empathy. You know the 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 hard part. But I, but I, I wouldn't have that that peace and that joy either. And to be able to you know work in that in that situation and rebuild that relationship and those kinds of things. Um, you know, I think sometimes those of us who've grown up in church, we get the evangelism, we get the teaching, but we 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 maybe miss living life. Those of us who have not grown up in the church, you hear a lot of people say, well, I want to be happy. I want to make other people happy. Well, it's all about love, mm-hmm. right? I want to uh, just help other people. I want to solve the injustices of the world, but they don't know about Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't know um, who God is. They don't know the specifics of what Jesus has asked. And so I think Michael's really really uh, hit it on the head that this discipleship component means not means going out and not just having a Bible study with people, but going out and completely, completely changing how we view every single relationship that we have. And uh, Michael is somebody who has helped me really understand that in the last five years. He's a great friend. I'm so glad that he was able to be here tonight. You can, you can hear uh, just how uh, intelligent and, and how well read he is and how he's able to uh, dumb that down for people like me. <laughs> so that I can understand it and put it in my books and my stories and things like that. I've just learned so much from him. So thank you for being here yeah, tonight. Absolutely. And yeah. I know that uh, the people watching are really thankful. We'll have the recording up on the podcast uh, as soon as I can, maybe tonight. And uh, I love you all. Thank you all for being here. Go make disciples and I'll see you Monday night. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.